Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. Welcome back to the show. I'm your host, Nico Perino, and this is So To Speak, the free speech podcast where every other week we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. For today's conversation, I'm joined by attorney Lee Levine to discuss defamation. What is defamation, you might ask? Generally speaking, it's what happens when someone shares a message that is damaging to your reputation. And generally, you can sue that someone for it. Whether you win, well, that's another story. Usually, for a message to be defamatory, it must be false. But Historically speaking, that's not always been the case. When the message is written or published, we typically refer to the defamation as libel. When it's spoken, we typically refer to it as slander. In most legal systems, as I mentioned, you have legal recourse if someone defames you. But the bar to prove defamation and win a judgment in your favor varies by country. In the United States, for example, it's hard to win a defamation case. In other countries, it's much easier. You might recall that in November of 2016, we tackled the case of Emory University professor Deborah Lipstadt and her journey into the world of British libel law. In that podcast, we discussed how, because of a quirk of the British legal system, she and a team of lawyers had to defend the truth about the Holocaust against British historian and famed Holocaust denier David Irving, who sued Professor Lipstadt for libel. On this podcast, we'll explore how the United States treats defamation, and Lee Levine will guide us on our journey. Lee is senior counsel at the law firm Ballard Spar and has represented media clients in First Amendment cases for more than 35 years. He's argued two cases in front of the Supreme Court and was one of the founding attorneys of the highly regarded First Amendment boutique law firm Levine, Sullivan, Koch, and Schultz, which merged actually with Ballard Spar in October of last year. Chambers USA says that Lee is considered the greatest First Amendment attorney in the United States and has ranked him a senior statesman in First Amendment litigation. He is also one of the principal founders and organizers of the First Amendment Salon, which hosted the debate that we featured in our previous podcast on Masterpiece Cake Shop versus Colorado Civil Rights Commission. So, without further ado, let's dive into the strange and often confusing and confounding world of defamation. Lee, thanks for coming on the show today. It's my pleasure. So, let's start by defining some of our terms so our listeners here um, have a good concept of the definitions behind defamation, libel, and slander. Because defamation is the umbrella term, right, that... Uh, encompasses both libel and slander. So what's defamation? What's libel and slander? Uh, Well, you're correct. Defamation is, uh, I guess, fair to call it the umbrella term. Uh, Defamation is basically uh, a spoken or written, either electronically or on paper or any other way, um, uh, statement that injures someone's reputation. Uh, Traditionally, libel has been written defamation, and slander has been spoken defamation. Uh, You can understand that uh, 
over the years, the utility of separating the two out or figuring out what's written and what's spoken uh, has become both more difficult and to a certain extent obsolete. So um, except for some arcane rules of law that still govern uh, differences between slander and libel, uh, lawyers really don't trouble much with the difference anymore. Well, why did they make a difference in the first place? Was one seen to be more injurious than the other? Oh, sure. Sure. I, you know, Libel being, I'm assuming, more injurious than slander because it's written? Yes. Back in, back in merry old England, it was, <laughs> it was um, uh, much different if uh, something that uh, was said that injured your reputation was memorialized on a piece of paper um, that could be printed and passed around as opposed to something that was said over the uh, backyard fence that um, only a couple of people heard. Now, is there any statute that just lumps them all together and says defamation, it doesn't matter in what context it's said, this is... Well, it's, it's, it's somewhat misleading to talk about it in terms of statutes because there really aren't a lot of statutes, at least in the United States, that deal with defamation at all. Um, some states have codified their, their law of defamation in, in statute, uh, and it's basically in those states just a codification of the, of the common law rules. Um, some states have specialty statutes that deal with aspects of defamation law, like retraction statutes or statutes um, creating certain privileges. Um, I suspect if you looked at all of those statutes closely, you'd still find a few that um, differentiated between libels and slanders, uh, but um, none come to mind. Okay. So, <laughs> so what you're saying then is that most states don't have a tort for you know, injurious statements. No, they have a tort, uh, but it's a tort that's a creature of the common law that's developed by judicial decision, okay. and, and th there's no statute on the books that says, oh, really? here are the elements of the claim of defamation, and here are the defenses to a claim for defamation. There are, there, there are some states that have codified some aspects or more or less of the claim, but um, the, the overwhelming majority are um, just creatures of the common law. Judge-made law. We don't have any federal statutes. Or we any. do not. We used to have, uh, what, uh, seditious, seditious libel. libel. We seditious libel. We don't at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> well, if the president had it his way, right. we might. So let's read off a couple of the statements that he has about it. He says, the, and I don't know if this came in a tweet or in a public statement, probably in a tweet, but he said, the libel laws are very weak in this country. If they were strong, it would be very helpful. You wouldn't have things that happen where you can say whatever comes to your head. That's one statement. He also said, we are going to take a strong look at our country's libel laws so that when somebody says something that is false and defamatory about someone, that person will have meaningful recourse in the courts. If somebody says something that's totally false and knowingly false, that the person that has been abused, defamed, libeled will have meaningful recourse and then the third relevant statement from our president says, our current libel laws are a sham and a disgrace and do not represent America's values or American fairness. So we're going to take a strong look at that. We want fairness. You can't say things that are false, knowingly false, and be able to smile as money pours into your bank account. We're going to take a very, very strong look at that. And I think what the American people want to see is fairness. So at the top, one of the things he gets wrong is he is assuming that there is some sort of defamation law to reform. 
which there is not, correct? Well, no, I can fault them for a lot of things, but not that. <laughs> um, I mean, theoretically, um, Congress could pass a law. So it could be a new law. That uh, purported to govern some aspects of defamation law. Um, you know, there'd be all sorts of interesting constitutional questions about the extent to which Congress had uh, the right to do that, to intervene in the uh law of the individual states with respect to this. And that's because defamation is basically a state law creature. Um, but the fact that it's not codified in any state laws really doesn't make a difference. Um, uh, so, you know, at one level, he's right, you could pass laws. I, but, but the more and the more interesting question is, would it be constitutional to do so? Um, at, at the first level, could you do it at all? Because is there a predicate for federal action in this area that would bind the states? And even if you got past that hurdle, you'd obviously have the First Amendment hurdle about would this new law propose things that uh, are contrary to what the First Amendment provides, and then it would be unconstitutional. Yeah, see, when I read, you know, take a strong look at our country's libel laws, I'm assuming what he meant was that there was some sort of federal statute that he could look at, or in this case, state statutes that he could look at. But it's not that simple. It's just looking at it. you'd have there'd have to be some sort of proactive action in the in in the way of passing a federal law that would then apply well, to the states. Well, you, you know, there's always a, a, a at least my view is there's always a problem with trying to interpret what the president says <laughs> about subjects like this, and and we often give him much more credit for actually thinking it through than than he probably does. But in all seriousness. To the extent he's talking about Congress passing a law that would change libel laws in some way or change defamation laws, that's highly unlikely to happen. It's highly unrealistic that he that any of the changes of the kind you would think he wants could be passed in a way that was a constitutional um, and, and well constitutional and that um, constitutional in two senses, yeah. that it, consistent with the First Amendment and something that Congress could legislate on in the first place. Um, but what he's also saying, and, and I think if you, if you really got down to it, what he's thinking in his half-formed kind of thought on this is that the libel laws and specifically the First Amendment protections surrounding libel and defamation laws are too press friendly, and I want to do something to to rectify that. And he is doing things on that front that are very scary and ought to be taken very seriously. One is he's appointing a bunch of judges, and judges are the people who ultimately interpret what the First Amendment means. And there's still a fair amount of room in the judge-made law that creates the First Amendment protections surrounding defamation law where things could be meaningfully cut back. So the more judges he gets to a point, the more of a realistic prospect there is that he will have an effect on reforming the libel laws. The other is just by his rhetoric, he has created an environment in which people are now not only thinking about defamation suits as a viable remedy for what they, when they don't like what's said about them or written about them in the press, but filing lawsuits. I, there's no question in my mind, and I've been doing this for almost 40 years, that at least when you're talking about 
significant stories of public concern involving public figures or other people involved in serious public matters, there is both more talk of and more actual defamation litigation than there's been, I think, in my lifetime. I guess let's take a step back here and and look at what the courts say about defamation, because there's sort of a you know, multi-pronged test that you have to meet for you to be a successful plaintiff uh, in, a, in a defamation claim, correct? Yes, there are. You want to? Yeah, let's go are? through them. <laughs> um, well, it, and it, it depends on whether you're a public figure or not yes. as well. Well, first of all, the baseline is does the, the publication, and, and I'll use publication loosely in the legal sense of the term, to include everything that is disseminated to a third party, yeah. whether it's you know on television or in a magazine or on the internet or in some other- Or on uh, a soapbox. Right, yeah. some other delivery mechanism. Um, the baseline for invoking First Amendment protection is, generally speaking, that the publication has to involve a matter of public concern. So if it doesn't, there's a real question about whether First Amendment protections kick in at all. But let's assume that we're dealing with a matter of public concern. If we're dealing with a matter of public concern, then the primary issue for calibrating the amount of First Amendment protection you get is the status of the plaintiff. Is the person who's filing the lawsuit a public official or a public figure on the one hand, or is he or she a so-called private individual, which is a non-public figure or public official on the other? If you're a public official or a public figure, you've got to prove by clear and convincing evidence in order to win that a false statement was published about you with actual malice. Now, actual malice, you would think as a normal intelligent person, means something like spite or hatred or ill will. Doesn't mean that at all. Only lawyers could come up with this. <laughs> uh, it actually has a very technical definition that has nothing to do with spite or malice or ill will. Actual malice means knowledge of falsity or reckless disregard of the truth, that you either had knowledge of falsity and went ahead and published, or you had reckless disregard of the truth. Now, you would think reckless disregard, normal person would think, oh, that's like super negligence. It's like reckless driving or you know something like that. It really means you were really, really negligent. You were reckless. No, that's not what it means. The Supreme Court tells us that that too has a very technical definition. Reckless disregard of the truth means that you had a high degree of awareness of probable falsity. So if you unpack all of that, a public figure or a public official to win a defamation suit has to prove that what was published about them was either false or probably false, and they knew it, mm. that they knew it was false or probably false. And the burden is here on the plaintiff. On the plaintiff, and it's a burden not just by preponderance of the evidence, like in most kinds of litigation, non-criminal, but by clear and convincing evidence, which is a higher standard. Yeah. If the plaintiff isn't a public figure, then all they have to prove is, in most states, is negligence. It's up to the states to set the level of liability, and most states have opted for negligence. Some some states have opted for na actual malice. Some states have opted for a kind of in-between standard. New York has one that's called gross irresponsibility, um, but most states, it, it's negligence. And that's an, if it, the publication is on an issue of public concern. A matter of public concern. A matter of public Bro concern. Broadly construed. Yeah. I, it, it, so like, let's say I am, I'm, I'm thinking a lot about 
real estate transactions right now because I'm trying to buy my first home. Let's say I am put, getting the ready to put an offer on a home and, and someone who's out to get me goes to the seller and says, this man is untrustworthy, you know, he's corrupt. Anything that he sends your way is, is going to be a bad deal and they'll back out. That's not on a matter of public concern, presumably. So what would the standard there be if I decided I wanted to you know, file a defamation claim? Very good question. Uh, that has not been definitively decided by the Supreme Court, but I think if you asked 10 constitutional First Amendment defamation scholars about it, 10 of them would say that's not protected by the First Amendment at all. That's private defamation, which is outside of the scope of the First Amendment. And then you would revert, in that circumstance, you would revert to the, the common law rules that existed from before there was the United States that we inherited from England. And one of the really noteworthy functions or noteworthy things about defamation law pre-First Amendment intervention is that defamation was what we call a strict liability tort, which means that you're liable simply by publishing something that injures someone's reputation. doesn't matter if it's false. doesn't matter if you did anything wrong in publishing it. And it doesn't matter if you suffered any real damages. At common law, if you publish something that injured somebody's reputation or on its face, yeah. the words were such that they would injure somebody's reputation— all the plaintiff would have to prove to win that case is that you published it in the sense that you disseminated it to a third party, that it was about you, mm -hmm. and that the words would tend to injure your reputation. Even if they're true. Even if they're true. Now, most jurisdictions in the United States adopted truth as a defense. Mm -hmm. So a defendant could then say, ah, yes, but what I said about you is true. But the burden of proving truth would be on the defendant plaintiff wouldn't have to prove falsity. Equally importantly, and in some senses more importantly, there's no fault requirement in there. There's no requirement like in most other areas of, of um, tort law yeah. that the plaintiff prove that you were negligent, that you were reckless, that you did anything wrong. It, it, was, it was almost – strict liability is reserved for things that are traditionally are reserved for things that are inherently dangerous like fireworks <laughs> or explosives. Um, words were thought of back, you know, in the day, especially after the invention of the printing press, um, as being inherently dangerous things. And that's why defamation law was so pro-plaintiff. There seems to be something that society is giving up by adopting that sort of standard. Let's say, for example, that I am a person that can never abide any contract that I enter into, and I want to enter into a contract with one of my neighbors, and someone else says, you got to watch out for this guy. You know, He's never good in his word. Any money that he says he has, he doesn't have. Um, he's going to figure out some way to screw you over. If that statement is true, there's a societal benefit to people knowing that. Right, but this, but this common law conception that has truth not factored into the equation, you would lose those so, those sort of social checks on malfeasance. Well, well, that's right, and and that's why even outside of the realm of speech about matters of public concern, which is the kind of domain of the First Amendment, uh, over the centuries, the common law strict standard 
got loosened in a number of ways for precisely the reasons you're talking about. So truth began to get recognized as a defense. Certain privileges began to be recognized, like if you were doing business with somebody and it was in your interest and the interest of the person uh, with whom you were doing business to communicate certain kinds of information, there would be a, a, a privilege to do that so that um, you can all, a qualified privilege so that you could only be held liable if you did it with malice um, and those kinds of things. But in the early United States, I mean, we did have seditious libel laws before the First Amendment was ratified. And then you had the Alien and Sedition Act afterwards, which could criminalize and did criminalize criticism of the government. So when did it, the, our current conception of defamation really begin to materialize? Was it not until the 20th century? Um, and this is speaking, of course, on issues of public concern where the law is more developed. Yeah. Uh, well, you could you could make rational arguments a number of different ways about when. Uh, if you read um, Justice Brennan's opinion, for the famous opinion for the Supreme Court in New York Times versus Sullivan, this he, is the landmark case. On landmark yeah. case. He would say that. This understanding of what the First Amendment means first crystallized during the debate around the Alien and Sedition Acts, uh, and that um, even the Adams administration that passed it knew that it was skating on very thin constitutional uh, ice, uh, and that the fact that after he was elected, Jefferson pardoned all the people who had been convicted under it and let it lapse um, was kind of proof that everybody really understood that that that, that statute, which was never tested in court, um, wouldn't have survived scrutiny under the First Amendment. Other people, like the late Justice Scalia, would say that's all poppycock, uh, that the truth of the matter is that nobody thought the First Amendment meant that until Justice Brennan wrote New York Times versus Sullivan in 1964. And then you have other people like Hugo Black, for example, who didn't believe in defamation law at all, who thought any statute allowing for a defamation tort uh, was unconstitutional under the First Amendment, correct? Yes, correct. Yeah. But he didn't win out. Uh, do you actually have sympathy for that view? Do you think that that is consistent with the First Amendment when you think Congress shall make no law? Um, Nat Hentoff was also famously in support of this position, the late Nat Hentoff. Yes. Um, <laughs> yes. Well, I'm reminded of um, the argument in the Pentagon Papers case in which um, Justice Black was giving uh, the Solicitor General, uh, Erwin Griswold, the former dean of Harvard Law School, a very hard time about his position on behalf of the government in the case. And, and Griswold responded something to the effect of, Justice Black, I, I know that you think no law means no law. All I can do is try to convince you that no law doesn't mean no law. Um, and it's, it's obviously much more complicated than that. And um, there are, I think, reasonable arguments on both sides of the extent to which um, Justice Black's line, which was between speech on the one hand and conduct on the other, even communicative conduct, um, is, is a justifiable one. Um, I think under Justice Black's formulation, um, you lose a lot. For instance, um, you know, he dissented in the Tinker case. Yeah. Um, because wearing armbands isn't speech. Um, and I think a lot of people would disagree with him on that. Um, but um, if it was speech, 
he thought no law meant no law and that you couldn't do anything at all. And defamation, obviously being speech, is, is something that he would have put on that side of the line. I think Justice Brennan probably has it right in that the First Amendment calls for uh, what, what he would call definitional balancing, which is kind of trying to figure out what freedom of the press, freedom of speech, those terms uh, mean and um, you know, pouring meaning into them by constructing rules like the rules he set out in the defamation context. There was a time in my life when I thought that um, we would be better off as a society and uh, the proper reading of the First Amendment ought to be one that public officials and public figures couldn't bring libel suits at all. Um, um, I'm rethinking that position. Uh, I, I think that um, Justice Brennan may well have had it right on, on an actual malice standard, um, provided that the actual malice standard is meaningfully applied and applied in a way through the litigation process that it doesn't do. Yeah, when we were talking about the prongs that support a successful defamation claim and you were describing actual malice. I get the sense that you don't love how the courts have defined that term, that oh, it's, no. it allows for too much wiggle room. N well, there, there is some truth to that. I, I, I just think it's funny that... Um, <laughs> you just think the phrase is funny. I just think it's funny that we've come up with all these phrases that don't mean what any normal person would think they mean, and so that you'd need to go to law school to learn that they mean something different, and, uh -huh. then, and then you can be a lawyer. But um, no, I, I think the problem with contemporary defamation law and contemporary defamation litigation is that um, not is not the formulation of the actual malice standard. I think it's a it is it is on its face a very rigorous test that ought to be very difficult for plaintiffs to meet. Um, the problem is how it is um, how it is dealt with during the litigation process. And what I mean by that is we've had a series of unfortunate defamation decisions over the years in which actual malice, despite the courts, including the Supreme Court, saying otherwise, is treated more as an issue of fact than it is as an issue of law. And when it's treated as an issue of fact, that means parties, A, get to take lots of discovery on um, whether or not you, in fact, expensive had, discovery, right, you, in <laughs> fact, had knowledge of falsity or probable falsity. Uh, and um, uh, as a result, not only don't cases get dismissed early on in the, in the litigation process when they're not onerously expensive to defend, but they almost by definition extend out for a long time at considerable burden and expense. That creates the cha same chilling effect uh, and the same punishment for doing um, important journalism than an adverse judgment would. How many of these claims are just dismissed out of hand? There is a, a it's lot. It's most of them, right? Uh, yes. There, there is a lot of just kind of common sense um, pressure on the system to get rid of cases that are not meritorious at the head end. I think judge, most judges have an instinctive feeling that oh, this is silly, um, or this person can't possibly win this case. It ought to be thrown out. Uh, and the law has developed ways to release that pressure by finding avenues for cases to be dismissed. Um, 
And those are the anti-slap statues. That Some of that, that's on more of a procedural level, but I'm thinking of more substantive things like finding that um, whatever was said was an s- expression of opinion rather than a statement of Oh, okay, of fact. I see what you're saying. So you can throw it out on its yeah. face, or it's not reasonably capable of the defamatory meaning that the plaintiff claims it is, or that it's not really about the plaintiff in the first place. It's about somebody else, or he's being uh, you know, unduly sensitive and thinking it was about him, or something like that. But, um, but th- those are all kind of clever judicial ways around what is really the main problem, which is that if you're looking at the actual malice standard to provide you the protection, which is really what Justice Brennan envisioned in New York Times versus Sullivan, if you don't make that protection available until the back end of the process after there's been extensive discovery and intrusions into the newsroom and um, in, you know credibly costly proceedings involving depositions and document production requests and interrogatories and and all of these things it's not a meaningful protection so the law of late has been looking for ways to push that decision about whether or not there's a realistic prospect that the plaintiff could prove actual malice to the beginning of the case rather than toward the end of the case. And anti-slap statutes are certainly part of it. Yeah, and those are uh, strategic lawsuits against public participation is what that stands for. Yes, because I think about it. I mean, in many cases, the process is the punishment, even if there's no judgment against you. I Let's say, for example, I'm a citizen journalist and I say something against Donald Trump, who's a public figure, uh, who theoretically would lose any defamation claim that he 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 brings um, but he sues me he has a lot of money I'm don't have a ton of money uh, and then I have to hire a lawyer and we have to go through the whole process I mean that's that's the chilling effect right there I just avoid speaking up in the future to try and avoid this sort of uh, lawsuit and I and if I'm not mistaken Donald Trump has brought quite a few of these lawsuits before, correct? It's my understanding. Yeah. Not since he's been president. But he's threatened to yes, since uh, Fire and Fury, I think, was uh, he, he, had, he had his lawyer write a strongly worded lawyer's note to the publisher in that case. But the United States is a bit unique in how we handle defamation, correct? I mean, we're like the only country in the world that has a very it's it's the law isn't very sympathetic to the plaintiffs i i think back to an interview i did was that last year or the year before with emory university professor deborah lipstadt who wrote a book about holocaust denial and took on famous holocaust denier david irving in pretty strong terms david irving because the book was published in the uk um accused her of defamation but the burden was flipped he didn't need to prove the falsity of Professor Lipstadt's claims. Deborah Lipstadt needed to, cl- to prove the truth of her claims, which in this case had the weird quirk of end- being that she needed to prove that the Holocaust happened. And this was like something like a six-year ordeal, lots of money. Thankfully, her support was pro bono because there were philanthropists that were willing to come to her defense, and they just made a movie about it. Uh, very different than here in the United States, correct? Yes, and maybe no. (laughs) A couple of observations about that. Yes, traditionally, uh, it has been much easier to prevail in a defamation case if you were a plaintiff in the UK. Um, And that's because of things like 
there being no actual malice standard in the UK, there being a truth defense, but no burden on the plaintiff to prove falsity. Um, so it's very, it, it is it is easy, and I think to, to a significant extent still true, to say that our defamation laws uh, are much more defense friendly than those in, in the UK. And, and, and that, that's true, uh, certainly, uh, if you look at the face of the substantive law. Um, there's another side to the coin, though, in fairness, which is that um, in the UK, um, damages awards are capped um, at by our standards, relatively modest amounts. So, for instance, what happened in the Hulk Hogan Gawker case would never have happened in the UK. The, the, there's no way in which there would have been a thirty-eight, hundred and fifty million dollar, whatever judgment, it was, yeah. judgment. Um, there's much closer judicial scrutiny in the UK of defamation lawsuits. As a matter of course, at the very beginning on issues like is this capable of a defamatory meaning and what defamatory meaning is it reasonably capable of, then there is here, which has the effect of weeding out a lot of cases that would proceed here but not there. Um, so especially on the damages side but also in terms of how the procedures work over there. I, I think there are aspects of current UK defamation law that are more attractive than ours, and also their substantive law uh, has been um, has been revised to a significant extent over the last few years. So they now have um, a a kind of fault standard um, that um, is not quite actual malice, but in practice might not be much different from it. And that's that's a result of a lot of people just forum shopping, trying to find good places to bring defamation suits. And they would often travel to the UK yes. because their, their, their yes. laws were more plaintiff-friendly. Right. And so that resulted in some reforms. There was also, um, correct me if I'm wrong, some litigation here in the United States to prevent people in the United States exercising their First Amendment right from claims overseas, correct? Yes, we have. We now have a federal statute called the Speech Act, and I forget what speech the acronym <laughs> stands for. But, but the Speech Act base and and the Speech Act basically codified the results of some. Uh, so this is a legislative effort, not well. A, it, it was originally a case law effort. Um, uh, there was a case here in in D.C. and there was another one in New York, um, and then Congress kind of picked up on that theme and passed this this thing called the Speech Act. And the Speech Act basically says, look, if you're um, successfully sued in a, in a country other than the U.S. Uh, for a claim that arises out of your exercise of your, your what would here be your First Amendment rights of free speech, uh, and a judgment's entered against you, and the, and the prevailing party comes to the United States where your assets are to attempt to collect on that judgment, they cannot do so if their laws don't comport with our constitutional requirements and they haven't satisfied those requirements. So, you know, if, if um, you, you, you fail to show up to defend yourself in a defamation case in Russia and uh, a $100 million judgment is entered against you and, and the prevailing plaintiff in Russia comes here to try to enforce that judgment, odds are... Um, the Speech Act would protect you from having to satisfy that judgment. Let's go back to New York Times versus Sullivan now, because we've talked a lot about the abstract of you know, how these laws work. 
or how this theory works. What happened in New York Times versus Sullivan that created the bedrock of, of modern defamation law? Well, New York Times versus Sullivan uh, arose out of the civil rights movement. Um, it very much was part of uh, the Supreme Court's active intervention in um, matters of race relations uh, in the South um, from desegregation forward. Uh, and it arose from uh, a fairly organized effort of public officials in Alabama to try to keep the northern press from reporting to the rest of the country uh, about um, southern uh office holders' efforts to impede segregation and other civil rights activities. Um, in the Times v. Sullivan case specifically, um, it didn't actually arise out of, a, uh, out of a piece of journalism that had been published in the Times. It arose out of an advertisement that had been taken out by um, a group that called itself the Committee to protect Martin Luther King and uh, something else, I forget. Um, but in any event, uh, it, it basically was an ad signed by dozens of prominent citizens and civil rights leaders basically saying that, um, you know, Dr. King was being harassed and, and his movement stymied by uh, people in the South who didn't want to see um, uh, civil rights and equality uh, move forward. And um, several public office holders in Alabama, including the governor and others, filed lawsuits against the New York Times for publishing this advertisement. And the idea was that if they could each recover uh, the amount of money that they sought, or there was a real risk of that, which there clearly was, the, the Times would move, take its reporters out of Alabama and stop reporting. Um, and one of the plaintiffs was a guy named L.B. Sullivan, who was uh, an elected commissioner of Montgomery, Alabama. And his job, or among his jobs as uh, commissioner, was he was in charge of the police department. And although he wasn't mentioned by name, in fact, nobody, none of the plaintiffs were mentioned by name in this advertisement, the advertisement referred generally to, quote, they, close quote, who were otherwise described as Southern violators of the Constitution. And it described various actions that had been taken, including putting Dr. King in jail on trumped-up charges and um, padlocking a dining hall at a university during protests. Does it matter that they didn't name them? It should have, but um, in those days, um, and in, until New York Times versus Sullivan to a certain extent, in those days, if any witness got up on the witness stand at a trial and said, I understood that advertisement to refer to Commissioner Sullivan over there, that would be enough. And then a jury could decide whether or not uh, it was, as the law puts it, of and concerning him. That's the technical requirement. But in any event, Sullivan sued, claiming that uh, he was one of the people referred to in they, and that he hadn't engaged in any of the bad things that the advertisement uh, attributed to, quote, they, close quote, uh, and that therefore he could win. And to win, as I said earlier, under the common law of Alabama, all he had to prove was that there was a publication, which there clearly was, that it was about him, and that's the subject we just talked to about, and that it would tend to injure his reputation if he was falsely accused of doing all of these things, and, and it would. So uh, it was kind of a no-brainer under Alabama law, uh, and uh, he won the maximum maximum amount that he sought, which was $500,000, which was a lot of money in 1964. Uh, and there were four or five other plaintiffs waiting in line to do the same thing. And 
the Times got the Supreme Court to take the case. And the justices recognized that this was an important threat to the ability of the country to understand what was going on uh, in the South at that time and to understand why the Supreme Court was doing the things it was doing in Brown versus Board of Education and, and other cases, uh, and that uh, the First Amendment simply had to be interpreted to protect the times in these circumstances. Now, there were a ton of different ways in which the Supreme Court could have done that. The, the, the really important thing from a First Amendment perspective about Times v. Sullivan is that Justice Brennan sees the moment to basically re-explain what the First Amendment means in this country, when you're, especially when you're talking about the press. Which um, was a revolution for it, how it, the First was, Amendment has been interpreted. Absolutely. Um, as a practical matter, uh, it certainly was. And what Justice Brennan referred to in Sullivan as the central meaning of the First Amendment quote unquote, um, has really kind of set the stage for what has now been 50 plus years of constitutional development uh, that has you know, created a very different First Amendment from the one that existed in 1963. Yeah. So theoretically, in this sense, Brennan reinterprets the First Amendment to create greater protections for publishers like the New York Times against defamation claims. If you get new judges in who interpret the First Amendment differently, theoretically, though that conception could be undone. And this brings us back to an earlier part of the conversation. You have Donald Trump, who clearly has a certain view <laughs> of defamation. Uh, he appoints judges to the, the lower courts, the Supreme Court, who, have, who share his view. Could New York Times v. Sullivan ever be reinterpreted or at least the defamation law ever being reinterpreted? And kind of to piggyback on that question, do you think Donald Trump or the people that advise Donald Trump on who to nominate are considering these sorts of things in their nominations? Or are groups like the Federalist Society, which we know has a large influence in his judge selection? I mean, the Federalist Society, in my understanding, has a pretty robust respect for the First Amendment. So are they at odds? A number of questions to throw out there. I'm just interested to hear your thoughts. All good questions. Um, let's see if I can take them in some sort of logical order. Um, <laughs> on the first one, could Times v. Sullivan be overruled? Um, theoretically, of course. Yeah, yes. that's always a bad question to ask a lawyer because the answer is always theoretically yes. Um, realistically, it, right. realistically, highly unlikely. I mean, even Justice Scalia, who you know would go around the country and in speeches often invoke Times v. Sullivan as an example of the kind of case that he thought was wrongly decided, um, never went so far as to say that he thought that Sullivan should be overruled. And when once asked about it, directly said, you know, something to the effect of, um, "I'm." You know, I'm crazy, but I'm not stupid or something like that. <laughs> um, or I'm stupid, I'm not crazy. I, some, some variant of yeah. that. Um, but, um, but yeah, could it be overruled? Um, highly unlikely. Uh, could it be construed in a way that severely limits the scope of the protections that it affords? Absolutely. And we have seen numerous instances of that in, in our post-Sullivan constitutional history. Yeah, I mean, um, well, when plaintiffs are trying to poke holes in New York Times versus Sullivan, what are, what are their go-tos? Well, just to, just to let history kind of be a teacher here, um, uh, we went through a period in the, in the 70s 
uh, where the Supreme Court very very narrowly construed who who is and who is not a public figure uh, in a way that has made it at least somewhat more difficult to um, uh, have certain plaintiffs declared public figures so that they get the benefit of the more lenient standard. Um, there were a number of cases uh, in the 70s and 80s uh, where the court rejected claims that the First Amendment provided procedural protections in the context of defamation suits that would make them easier to dispose of early in the case, uh, the kinds of things that we were talking about before. Yeah. Um, and um, there, there are a number of, uh, of, of examples like that. But if you, but if you look at the, the decisions of kind of the 60s uh, before Earl Warren stopped being chief justice, uh, and compare them with the decisions that came in like the 10 or 15 years after that, you'll see that there was a real retrenchment and, and cutting back as a practical matter in, in the reach and, and the scope of Sullivan, not to mention not allowing it to extend further than it had before. And just to give you one example, um, you know, Sullivan itself was only about public officials because the plaintiff in that case was a public official. A couple of years later, the court extended it to public figures, people who didn't hold public office but were nevertheless important subjects of news reporting. A couple of years later, a plurality of the court, that means there weren't enough justices for a, for a majority, but a plurality of the court extended it to any matter of public concern. So actual malice would have to be proved by any plaintiff who was involved in a matter of public concern. And then you know, two or three years after that, after the composition of the court changed with four Nixon appointees, the court said, no, 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 we're not, we're not doing that. <laughs> um, Non-public figures don't have to prove actual malice to win. Um, and in the normal course, if, if left to its own devices, the Sullivan Standard would have been extended to all matters of public concern. What about public figures' private facts, Hulk Hogan's sex tape? would dispute the notion that that, that <laughs> was a public figure private facts, but um, uh, what about it? <laughs> well, well, I mean, d does, that, does that matter? I mean, or if we're talking about public figures and we're talking about what is subject, where it's most likely you'll be successful in a defamation claim, are we just talking about public figures who make statements in public, whose lives are in public, but who still have private portions of their, li their, it, it their is, life? It is a... Does that question make sense? I yes, be, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The Supreme Court's never really spoken to the issue directly of are there aspects of a public figure's life that um, are sufficiently private that the actual malice standard wouldn't apply to them. I think there's a general judicial recognition that um, somebody who is a public figure has exposed pretty much all of their lives to public scrutiny. Um, there may be limitations on that that a particularly egregious case would would highlight and that some court would say, okay, this person may be a public figure, but you know, whether they did X or Y has nothing to do with why they're a public figure. Yeah, so they like, don't have you to know, this, this person's a public figure, but they treat their ch children terribly or like they spank their children. Probably not of public concern, but perhaps. I, I could make that argument. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> and you, I, I mean, my my suspicion of the law right now is you would you would probably win, right? I mean, in most cases. But then I think of the Gawker case and Hulk Hogan, and well, it, it, you know, now I'm I'm guilty because I'm the one who invoked the Hulk Hogan case <laughs> to begin with. Um, I don't and, know if you're involved in that case. If and, you are, we and, can and, we can put it aside. Well, but. I probably should, in the interest of full disclosure. Mm-hmm. Um, my 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 former law firm did represent Gawker in that case. I wasn't personally involved in it, but um, my former firm did represent Gawker in that case. But um, the Hulk Hogan case was an invasion of privacy case, not not a defamation case. Um, so uh, some of what we're talking about here is Oh, so the litigation was only around privacy? It wasn't? Because yes, when, I, when I hear reporting on it, I'm like, oh, this, you know, this is a rollback of our, what we can, had conceived of as, you know, protection against defamation claims. And, you know, this puts publications at risk. And I all thought it was in the defamation context, but. No, it's not. It, 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 it illustrates in my judgment in a, you know, in a very stark way, a lot of what's wrong with defamation law today from a, from my perspective, but it wasn't a defamation case. It was a privacy case. Yeah. But it does, you, in your opinion, you think it is a threat to a free and open press, correct? Yes. Yeah. So I'm not going to let you get off scot-free uh, on the judge question. Your thoughts on the the appointing of... Uh, oh, yes. And I, I, I realize you probably weren't trying to pivot it. We got on another yes, thought train. Yes, I wasn't trying to... No, it, that, that's a very interesting question. I, You know, my, my sense is I'm, I'm as paranoid uh, as the next guy, but... Because um, when you think about Gorsuch, we don't have much from him yet. But he doesn't seem to be all that bad on the First Amendment. If you read, like some some of the things he wrote in college, for example. Oh, and you read. He, I mean, he wrote an excellent opinion, which um, was in a case in which my former firm was counsel. Another one I wasn't involved in, but um, uh, in which um, he wrote an excellent defamation opinion um, that uh, I thought was quite vigorous um, in its um, pro First Amendment uh, take. Uh, but, you know, you can never tell what happens to judges when they get on the Supreme Court. But I, I was going to say, I mean, I'm as paranoid as the next guy, but I have a hard time thinking that when the Federalist Society people get together to pick nominees for judges, the, one of the things on their checklist is, are you going to vote to overrule New York Times versus Sullivan? Yeah. I, think that I, I think they have bigger fish to fry. Um, and I also think, uh, you know, I know enough about this to be dangerous, but I also think that um, Trump is willing to defer to those folks in making those appointments. That seems to be the case, um, so, so far so at least. So that he's not going in there saying, I want a judge who's uh-huh. going to overrule Neuer Thines versus Sullivan. And on the issue of you know what a, a, a judge who was a advocate of the school of constitutional interpretation that we understand the Federalist Society to be would be pro or anti-New York Times versus Sullivan uh, is an interesting and complicated question. It is true that on many First Amendment issues, um, a justice like Justice Scalia um, was a you know, a staunch defender of First Amendment rights. Um, it is also true that Justice Scalia carved out um, as a practical matter from that uh, staunch First Amendment protectionism um, pretty much anything involving the mainstream media. So, <laughs> yeah, um, flag burning, okay, but yeah. yeah. So, um, and, and of course, as I said before, he's on record, he was on record many times saying that he thought that Thomas V. Sullivan was wrongly decided. Um, by the same token, you take somebody like Justice Kennedy, 
um, you know, who has been a staunch First Amendment supporter uh, pretty much across the board. And my sense is that that extends to New York Times versus Sullivan as well. Yeah, so. yeah Justice Kennedy's interesting. I mean, I've been listening to a lot of the oral arguments from this term. Janice, for example, Masterpiece Cake Shop. I think he's going to be the swing vote in both of those cases. And I think he's going to go on, on the First Amendment side. What is your suspicion there? I don't know. <laughs> Just based on know. his questioning. Yeah. Um, and the Janus argument, and I realize we're getting getting far afield here. I mean, the the, the questions he was asking about the record and, um, or no, this is the Masterpiece Cake Shop side and, and how the, the state courts and the Civil Rights Commission treated uh, Mr. Phillips in that case, talking about his religious liberty, uh, just suggests to me, well, hopefully... I hope that they don't rule on, on um, free exercise, um, but I don't know. It's just interesting. I don't have fully formed thoughts on it, but I, if I had a guess, I mean, this is terrible. I mean, I just this is like you know, this is like picking NCAA brackets. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, if I had a guess, I, I I would think that Justice Kennedy would look for a way um, to rule. Um, against the cake shop, um, but do so in a way that was fact-based and didn't create an avenue for um, limiting First Amendment rights in, in, in cases where he thought First Amendment rights were really implicated. Yeah, I don't know that he, he would want to ruin the legacies built from himself in Obergefell, which, you know, in the gay rights community and the larger liberal community, he's a hero for. <laughs> so he, he's a predicament there. I think it was Ruth Bader Ginsburg who said, it's a tough position to be in to be Anthony Kennedy. I mean, uh, but I don't want to close on that note. I want to close on the respect or uh, shade that is thrown on attorneys who represent plaintiffs in defamation cases in, in the First Amendment community. Because my understanding is if you're, and I'm not a First Amendment attorney, but if you're a true First Amendment attorney, you don't represent plaintiffs in defamation cases. And I was, uh, and there's actually, to be a member of one of these associations, you have to commit to not representing plaintiffs in defamation cases. But then I was at a panel at NYU last year where Floyd Abrams said, well, we might need to reconsider that in the Trump era, which took me by complete surprise. And somebody else who I've interviewed on this podcast before, Martin Garbus, my understanding, he's kind of been excommunicated from the First Commandment community because he has taken plaintiffs in defamation cases. And actually, one of his most famous ones, I forget the fact pattern there, involved with an, involved an alleged rape where he, he represented um, one of the plaintiffs there. I guess they just found out that it was true that there were the, the, the public, I, I don't know. Donald Trump was involved in it somehow, so it was making the news. But I'll, I'll let you respond here. True First Amendment attorney, if you represent plaintiffs in defamation well, cases or not? I think you're con you're confusing two things. Um, one is a, All right, correct me. <laughs> a, 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 there are many, many. I, well, let me start over. It depends on how you de define First Amendment attorney. Um, if you're talking about lawyers that um, have practices that are dedicated to. Um, First Amendment issues or academics that study the First Amendment. Yeah, that's not what um, I mean. What I mean is there are lots of them that represent plaintiffs. Um, uh, if you are talking about people whose practices are built around representing the press, um, which involves um, lots of First Amendment issues and I suppose qualifies one as a First Amendment attorney, um, 
you are correct. Uh, for, I believe, good and valid reasons, the clients, the media clients that pay me to represent them don't want me representing plaintiffs and making law that will be bad for them going forward. Um, so those of us who concentrate our practice on defending the, me the news media um, do take that pledge. What do you think about Floyd Abrams' idea? that? Because um, I, I, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but can a corporation bring a claim uh, you know, a, a libel or slander? Because I thought that was the context he was talking about. It was, you know, news organizations or people within those news organizations. You have someone like perhaps the president or something, I don't mm -hmm. know, saying something about mm -hmm. them. It might, in that case, make sense to represent a plaintiff in a defamation suit. Um, I think that is what Floyd had in mind. <laughs> um, I've heard him say that as well. It's an interesting idea. It is an interesting idea. Um, and I think he might say, or at least someone who supported that idea might say, that's why we have the actual malice exception. Legitimate news organizations don't publish stuff that they know is probably false. Um, if somebody's doing that, there's no harm to the law in suing those people and proving that they, in fact, published a calculated falsehood. Um, and that's an intellectually defensible position. As a practical matter, if you are in the trenches litigating these cases, um, it would be very difficult to litigate one of them, even in, even in a situation where the person you were suing had, you knew with every fiber in your body, disseminated a calculated knowing falsehood. It would be very difficult to litigate that case without, in the process, having to take positions on issues that would be adverse to others of your clients in future cases. Um, and you don't want to be in that position. Yeah. All right. Well, Lee, I think we're going to leave it there. I thank you for this master class on defamation, libel, slander, whatever you want to call it. Uh, it's been a lot of fun. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. That was Lee Levine of Ballard Spar. To learn more about Lee and his work, you can visit his staff page at ballardspar.com. This podcast is hosted and produced and recorded by me, Nico Perino, and edited by Aaron Reese. To learn more about So To Speak, you can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash freespeechtalk or like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash podcast. You can also email us feedback at so to speak at thefire.org or call in a question for a future show at 215-315-0100. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts. Reviews help us attract new listeners to the free speech world and to this show. Until next time, I thank you all again for listening.